This is The Dish, the official podcast of the National Reconnaissance Office, brought to you by the NRO's Office of Public Affairs. Hello and welcome to The Dish. I'm Victoria Stonecipher representing NRO's Office of Public Affairs. Today, we're reflecting back on the last 60 years with three managers from the Center for the Study of National Reconnaissance. Deputy Director Patrick Woodlake, Chief Historian Michael Sook, and Chief of Recognition Exhibits and Outreach Annie Hakes. How is everyone today? Very good. Very good. Fine. Good. CSNR has three different business areas, research, study, and analysis, historical documentation and research, and recognition exhibits and outreach. Can you each tell us how long you've been in CSNR and what your role is within these areas? Let's start with you, Patrick. Other than about a year between the end of 2012 and 2013, I've actually been supporting CSNR since October of 2004. So I'm the longest serving person currently in the office. Um, I was a contractor before, and since December of 2013, um, I became the government uh, lead, the chief of the research studies and analysis section. And the RSA section is responsible for lessons learned, research, um, we do uh, research notes, we do uh, you know, fact sheets, and we have a periodic publication, a, a journal of scholarly articles that deal with topics of national reconnaissance interest. And we also do a scholarly symposium from time to time where we'll have an event and we'll bring in speakers um, uh, arranged around a topic. Great, and how about you, Mike? I'm the uh, chief of HDR, and uh, I've been there since 2013. Um, I started off with a JDA rotation as, as from NGA, decided I want to stay here and with the exception of a year and a half after going back to NGA and coming back, uh, I've been here since then. So um, as the chief of HDR, uh, what we do is we are the ones who produce the books that CSNR publishes. Um, one misconception with us is we don't actually write histories. Uh, we were basically the producers of them. Uh, most of our authors are either contract historians or former employees, you know, project engineers, program managers, things like that, who volunteer their time or are given time off of their work while they're here to write a history for the NRO. And what we do is we help them along in that process, teach them how to write a history, um, help them with research, uh, edit, edit it, lay it out, and publish it. Um, we also teach and brief history uh, programs uh, throughout the year. Um, we run the oral historian program where we, we interview a lot of old employees and, and uh, national reconnaissance individuals. And uh, we produce the Week in History uh, item that the director puts out each week in his director's weekly note. And Annie, what about you? Well, I'm the new kid on the block. I joined the team late last year. And recognitions, exhibits, and outreach. Uh, recognitions, we um, do programs that honor contributions to the discipline of national reconnaissance. And this year, that also includes the 60th anniversary celebration. Exhibits, we run the NRO's museum. So we, uh, we acquire things. We make sure that they're properly cared for. We curate exhibits. Um, and we also coordinate loans with other museums that, that may want to display NRO artifacts. And the O is for uh, outreach, and that's um, scholarly outreach. Um, 
not too much of that so far this year, mostly because of the pandemic. So in celebration of its 60th anniversary coming up on September 6th, the NRO launched a campaign on our social media pages in January and February of this year, looking back at the Starcatchers. We received a lot of comments from actual Starcatchers on their social media pages, reflecting back on their time working with the Corona program. Mike, can you explain how the Corona program's success paved the way for reconnaissance everywhere? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, corona was, in essence, an intelligence evolutionary change. Um, if you can relate it to human history, uh, Corona, along with GRAB, which was our first SIGIN satellite, which is actually the first intelligence satellite, because um, it launched two months before Corona, um, those two uh, ushered in the space age of, in, of international intelligence. And in terms of human history, that's equivalent to about the Industrial Revolution. So it was, it was, a, it was a shift in, in, in epoch, almost. Um, the star catchers were an integral part of the Corona program. They were the ones who caught the film buckets as they were after they were released from the satellite um, to prevent them from going into the ocean. And without them, we never would have gotten anything uh, from Corona. Um, but even though what Corona showed us was that even though it started off poorly, it took 13 tries before they were able to successfully uh, have have a successful launch, a fully successful launch. Uh, what it showed was how you learn along the way. Um, they tried 13 times but kept going and they eventually turned into a very efficient uh, program. Uh, as time went on, in our other programs, Gambit and Hexagon, you will see how we improved over, over time. Um, Hexagon, there was only one failed launch. Gambit, there was only a few, a handful. Um, so we got better as time on. We learned from our mistakes and we incorporated them into our, into our future work. And today it's knock on wood. It's been, uh, it's been a long time since we've had a launch failure. So hopefully we'll never have another. Now the NRO has also been featuring on the state posts, which have highlighted previous launches, the beginning of new directorates and projects, as well as several firsts, such as the first U-2 mission over the Soviet Union, which happened on July 4th, 1956. It also included the cancellation of the Manned Orbiting Laboratory Program on June 9th, 1969, ordered by President Richard Nixon, and the last Gambit 3 launched on April 17th, 1984 on a Titan 3B. Mike, what would you say is the most important on this day for the NRO, besides the anniversary of the NRO, of course? Um, well, today is the 3rd of August, and uh, one important thing that happened on this day in 1963 was part of the NRO's Program D. Uh, the agency uh, launched a U-2 off of an aircraft carrier for the first time. Uh, modified U-2 was launched off the USS Kitty Hawk uh, off the coast of San Diego. Um, it was designed to, uh, to deploy around the world without having to deploy to a foreign country first because we were worried about uh, political repercussions having to deploy our U-2s to foreign countries before they before they were launched. So we thought, put them on an the aircraft carrier, we won't have to do that. But turns out there was no real political repercussions. They didn't emerge, and the cost of the aircraft carrier program was too much, and so it was eventually canceled. It, it had one operational mission, um, but that was it. So we talked about the Corona program, but the other major programs that were recently declassified are the Gambit and Hexagon programs. Patrick, can you tell us a bit about those? As Mike already mentioned, the Gambit and Hexagon were the 
successors to, and they, and they built upon the experience that the NRO had had with the Corona program. They were also two of the uh, legacy film return satellites, meaning the, uh, the images were taken and then uh, they were brought back uh, in a, um, a recovery vehicle that was uh, caught midair by a, a, uh, an airplane, the Starcatchers, as we, as we talked about it earlier as well. Uh, in the case of Gambit, it was the NRO's uh, first um, imaging satellite that had a high-resolution camera. And what made this so significant was it enabled our analysts to do technical intelligence. Um, for the first time, they could do informed judgments about weapon systems and facilities and things like that because we had such great um, resolution, which was probably some of the best that we've, we've gotten in our history um, with Gambit. Um, uh, the Hexagon, by contrast, was the successor to Corona in the broad area search uh, mission. So it was covering a huge swaths of ground and, and picking up um, all sorts of uh, information um, that really enabled us to be very confident um, with verifying the arms control treaties which we entered into. Um, in fact, the launch of successful launch and operation of Hexagon really um, gave us the confidence to sign like the first SALT agreements with the Soviet Union. So uh, between the two of them, they, they did an, an amazing uh, job of giving us all the uh, imagery information that we could possibly want. Um, Gambit operated in two forms because there were actually two iterations of the Gambit from 1963 all the way up into 1984 and Hexagon from 1971 to 1985. So these were both very, very successful systems. Uh, Hexagon also included on 12 of its uh, 19 successful missions a mapping camera, which enabled us to literally map the entire world. I mean, just incredible uh, system. So they were both um, amazingly successful, and the most facts about these two programs were declassified about 10 years ago for the 50th anniversary. And we had a uh, big exhibit at the Udvar Hazy, you know, Air and Space Museum annex. And one of the, the biggest uh, attractions of that day was a fully restored hexagon vehicle that people could come and look at. And the thing is, you know, 60 feet long. It's the, it's the length of a school bus. So it's really, really impressive. I bet that was a hit. Yeah, it was. It really was. <laughs> so CSNR is also in charge of the Pioneer Program, the highest honor in national reconnaissance. Can you explain what it takes to be a pioneer? Do you have to specifically work at the NRO, or can you be an NRO partner? And do you have to work in national reconnaissance for a certain amount of time? And I'm going to answer these a little bit out of order, but basically this is one of the NRO's highest honor, and it's designed to recognize anyone who's made a con contribution to the field of national reconnaissance that is deemed to be of lasting significance. And there's a panel that reviews it, and those are... Uh, mostly retired folks who have extensive NRO experience. And uh, the contribution, has, like I mentioned, has to be time-tested, um, but it could be something that was developed just very briefly or something that took a long time to develop. It's open to really anyone who's in some way connected with the NRO. They could be civilian employee, military, it could be someone who uh, is an NRO partner or contractor. And um, the only folks who aren't eligible are people who are already been recognized in some fashion, and that includes people who are um, part of the cadre of NRO founders. 
and those are people who were mostly kind of present at the creation of the NRO, and also uh, people in, who are in high senior leadership positions. They're, they're recognized in other way. Um, the Pioneer Program is really looking for people who are potentially unsung heroes. And um, we put out the nominations every year for this program. Um, this year the nominations close in late August, but we announce it broadly. Um, the, the information is available on the NRO website if you want to see what the nomination criteria are, are in detail and how you apply. And then also we've posted um, some unclassified information about what their contributions are. Some of them we can go into more detail than others because some of these contributions are things that are still very actively in use. And the last um, part of your question, what does it take to be an NRO pioneer? I may have my colleagues jump in because when we bring these folks here on Pioneer Day and it's a, a big event, part of what we ask them is to sit down with uh, CSNR staff and collect oral histories and what we actually were curious what it takes to be a pioneer. So if, if there's any um, any particular insights that you'd like to share, Patrick. I mean, obviously the, the criteria is to make a, a lasting contribution to national reconnaissance. These are the kind of game-changing innovations. And sometimes they're technological innovations. Sometimes they're management innovations, uh, a way of managing a program. Um, but what we've found in, in interviewing these pioneers, and we put them through a kind of a series of assessment uh, instruments that look at, for instance, uh, one, of the, one of the assessment instruments we use is like the Myers-Briggs test, so it kind of uh, tracks the way you approach a problem or you, the way you think about problems, the way you um, organize your work, the way you lead other people, that, that sort of thing. And we found that many of these uh, individuals tend to, uh, their, their Myers-Briggs uh, assessments tend to skew in the same uh, couple of quadrants, I guess, where um, they, they analyze things very, very logically as kind of as engineers. Most of them are sort of an engineering type mindset or a scientific type mindset where they're very, very da data-driven, um, very, very like evidence-driven. Um, uh, not so much on the, you know, like emotion or um, kind of, uh, you know, um, what's the word I want? A compassionate sort of leaders. They're, they're more about let's get the mission done. Very, very, you know, um, hardworking, put in the long hours, all that uh, kind of thing. So um, it's, I think it's, you know, it's all to the individual person because we all have different aspects about ourselves that um, relate to how we how we do our jobs. But uh, it is interesting how so many of our pioneers, at least, have fallen into those same couple of kind of personality types, if you will, and also very similar kind of leadership styles. One one interesting thing about them is that they their their positions were wide ranging, um, everything from 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 leaders, branch chiefs, things like that, uh, division chiefs to just the, the low-level worker people, um, guys, engineers, and pro and program uh, you know managers that, that got down and were doing the actual work, um, you know, guys who just got had an idea and designed something new, um, all on their own, or guys that were were in charge of teams that were doing things. 
you know, it's all different types of jobs that, you know, are the, are the interim managers. But the one thing Patrick said was that they're all very driven, very, very um, confident, and uh, you know they, they, they're 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 driven to get the, the mission accomplished. And I do also want to mention to our listeners that back in May we did have an interview with one of our NRO pioneers, Sam Araki. So if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure to go back and listen to that as well. Moving on, the director of CSNR, Dr. James Outson, was recently featured in Spycast, the podcast for the International Spy Museum. We have a pretty good partnership with museums around the area. Annie, what are a few artifacts currently on display that people can check out now that society is somewhat able to go out and about again? Um, let's see, starting kind of in the Washington, D.C. area, um, the Air and Space Museum, downtown D.C., um, you can see a hexagon KH-9 spacecraft and recovery vehicle at uh, Air and Space Museum at the Udvar-Hase location. You can see a Corona film recovery bucket. Um, at the International Spy Museum, they, I believe, currently have one of our TIOC cameras and a hexagon take-up reel. Uh, if you want to travel a little bit further outside the D.C. area, if you go to Dayton, Ohio, the uh, Air Force Museum has a number of our um, imagery satellite-related artifacts. You can see a Gambit 1, a Gambit 3, and also a hexagon KH-9, and that was the largest and the last of the film return family of satellites. And if you want to go to Birmingham, the Southern Museum of Flight has a D-21 drone, and that's um, those were launched from the aircraft in the early days of the NRO. And um, even further outside of the uh, D.C. area, the London Science Museum um, has one of the uh, Gambit take-up reels. And um, the caveat, unfortunately, for this and some of the other locations that have NRO artifacts on display is it really does depend right now on the particular museum and location in terms of, you know, are they currently open to the public? Um, the NRO has posted some of this information on its website and and or the museum in question often has a little bit about these artifacts. So if you can't go in person, you can also see it there. And um, unfortunately, the NRO's museum all sorts of wonderful things, but that's mostly open to people who, who can access the NRO complex. So um, we, we try and find other ways to make that information accessible. I actually didn't know that we had that many museums that we worked with. We're happy to try and get things out there because, you know, we, we always have more artifacts than we can display at any one time here at the NRO. So we, we want to get them out there and especially make sure that the public can see some of the things. And of course, remember, these are all things that have already been declassified, such as the uh, some of the, the programs Patrick and Mike talked about. So it helps to read about it and then actually be able to go and see how big, how small, you know, is it something that's been up in space? Is it maybe a model or a recreation? Because sometimes that's all that we have. That's awesome. Now, I hear that CSNR is working to publish a book later this year about 60 key innovations and 60 innovators that have contributed to the NRO success throughout its history. Patrick, can you provide a sneak peek of what readers can look forward to? Well, you've no doubt seen there are literally dozens of publications that say things like the history of the world in 100 objects or space exploration in 100 objects. The history of this and you know a, a hundred uh, incidents or a hundred facts or whatever 
And our book is very much in that tradition. So we wanted to look at 60 years of NRO history and we decided to look at 60 key innovations or 60 major innovators. And the innovations can be things like technology. Uh, for instance, I, I think I, I mentioned, um, you know, we were some of the first uh, to develop like the large space telescopes, uh, lightweight optics, our um, pioneering work in battery development, charge coupled devices, things like that. Um, they could also be like space firsts, as Mike said, you know, the first intelligent satellite grab, um, uh, Corona's the first imaging uh, from space, also the first man-made object recovered from space uh, on Corona's as well. So um, those are all uh, kind of innovative firsts or technological innovations, but it's also innovative business practices, management philosophy, we, we cover things like that. Um, in, again, short topic discussions. And then on the innovators side, we're looking at, again, the pioneers, the founders of National Reconnaissance, the, the very, very influential people who made decisions about programs, space programs, and also um, the program offices. So, uh, for instance, um, in the NRO in its uh, early days had uh, program offices that uh, independently worked with the industrial-based contractors and um, the industrial-based contractors as well are considered you know innovators because they were the ones who were really coming up with the technological developments so we look at those offices and how they manage the programs and what was innovative about that how did that achieve um, you know the amazing uh, uh, technological developments that we that we did at the NRO so it's a lot of very exciting topics, each covered in a couple of pages, and it'll be put together at the end of the year into a big book. Right now, we're kind of releasing them piecemeal as, as we complete them, uh, but it will be a, a book that will come out and it will be unclassified, so um, it'll be you know for the public. And we will be sure to highlight the book on social media once it comes out so that our followers will be able to read about the amazing history of the NRO. So Annie, with the 60th anniversary happening this year, can you tell us how this NRO has been celebrating? To be honest, it's, the celebration has kind of evolved over the past two years. We had originally had some larger plans, but the pan pandemic has kind of affected our reality as with everyone else's, so we've scaled back quite a bit. Um, one thing everyone can be on the lookout for is our 60th anniversary logo. It shows up in all different places. Um, and I don't want to say where because I want people to kind of look for it when they're seeing things the NRO puts out. Um, the museum team here at the NRO has put together some exhibits that are running throughout the years and those will be headquarters-based exhibits. But eventually we do hope to share some of those items with the public and um, some other projects that are mostly um, for, for the NRO workforce, because we decided if we had to choose because of the pandemic, we wanted to try and focus the celebration on the people that make up the NRO. Since we couldn't really do much, that would be um, a public programming like we normally would do in an anniversary year. Are there any artifacts that have caught your eye or that people tend to enjoy the most? Um, what we can talk about is the um, Star Catchers program, the um, film return buckets where the film came back from space and the parachutes that help them get back safely. Um, that kind of has become the, the, one of the visual themes of the 60th anniversary celebration. 
Um, so um, we had some replica parachutes and buckets fabricated and we hung 20 of them up in the lobby at NRO's headquarters and on each bucket we put the name of or name of 20 of the innovations on there so um, one innovation per bucket um, kind of as a preview of the 60 innovations and 60 innovators um, and you can see um, that the a couple of those parachutes and buckets on the video that Mike did for um, NRAL 82. So look closely and listen to what Mike says. It's all good. And I do have one more thing. If you're uh, if you're an artist, um, the kids section of the NRA website, you can learn how to draw your own um, parachute bucket and a couple different um, couple couple different rockets. So you don't have to be a kid, but it's on the kids section. Patrick, I'd like to turn back to you. What are a few things about the NRO's history that listeners may not be aware of? Some people may not be aware um, how much the NRO programs and activities have um, spun, spun off uh, commercial and civilian applications. So I'd just like to briefly touch on about three examples. Um, so way, way back, um, the NRO had a program called the Defense Meteorological Satellite Program, DMSP. And we developed it primarily so that we could kind of predict the weather to make sure that when our satellites were in um, operating mode, when they were going and taking images, that there wasn't cloud cover over the area that we were trying to image. You would get back uh, a lot of film that was spoiled by you know, uh, being able, unable to see the targets. So we developed this program and it later, uh, some of the individuals who were part of that later um, used uh, that in uh, civilian offices and they took uh, kind of the experiences that the NRO had had on that program to develop uh, uh, similar civilian weather satellites and also a database that contributed to a global weather system. So we were um, kind of at the forefront of that. On another program, we had, um, the Air Force, uh, even before the NRO existed, had started developing a series of satellites called the SAMOS program. And uh, these were kind of ahead of their time, and um, the technology really wasn't ready for them yet, but there were at least a couple of the systems that were uh, completed, but the NRO determined that with the successful launches of things like Corona and Gambit, they were no longer really needed for intelligence gathering purposes. So that technology was transferred to NASA, who NASA was, uh, in the 1960s, of course, was heavily involved in the Apollo program. And we used the, the cameras and the satellites to, instead of image in the Earth, we imaged the moon. And we mapped the moon surfaces to map out where would be the best landing sites for the Apollo uh, landing uh, crew. So that was a, a huge um, benefit to the country in getting a man on the moon by, you know, 19, at the end of the 1960s, as uh, John F. Kennedy had said we were going to do. Um, and then finally, the computer-based change detection and pattern recognition techniques that we developed on some of our programs have been incorporated in the medical field for things like mammography, uh, you know, um, MRIs, things like that. So um, again, hugely important to uh, civilian uh, applications. And in 1975, um, the government actually formed something called the um, Civil Applications Committee which looks at uh, sort of um, 
oversees the transfer of what is, uh, when it's developed, classified um, reconnaissance uh, technology um, and applying that in the civilian world, you know, the, the commercial world. Um, so uh, very, very uh, interesting aspect that a lot of people might not realize. I had no idea about that. I think that's amazing. Wow. Um, Mike, any final fun facts about the NRO that we may have missed? Sure. Did you know the NRO had its own astronauts? I did not. Yes. Not only that, but we had the first black astronaut in history. Really? Yes, we did. Um, in 1965, the NRO and the Air Force uh, began a project called the Mole Program for Manned Orbiting Laboratory. The idea was to put two men in a, in a, inside a satellite and have them uh, go up in space for a month to run the NRO's uh, KH-10 Dorian pr uh, project camera. And uh, what, they were what it was designed to do was to have these guys manually um, work on the work on the uh, satellite so that they could like avoid taking pictures of cloud-covered areas. They could react to uh, instant uh, happenings down on the Earth, uh, react to crises, things like that. And it was going to be a much more uh, reactive satellite um, and be much more effective because we wouldn't we wouldn't spend millions of dollars to put a satellite up in space and take a bunch of cloud-covered images, things like that. Um, the program only lasted about four years, uh, and it was canceled because our um, our unmanned satellites became better a lot quicker than we thought they were, and the benefit to, of putting men in space wasn't going to be that important, um, and so they decided not to risk uh, people's lives by put, putting uh, unnecessarily putting men up in space. Um, however, uh, in uh, June of 1967, uh, Robert H. Lawrence from Chicago was cho was chosen as one of the astronauts, uh, one of the 17 guys that were going to be trained to, to do that. Um, he was a he was a young, 30ish, uh, a young officer in the Air Force. Uh, he had a Ph.D. in nuclear chemistry. Um, exceptional exceptional young man. Um, however, he was tragically killed about six months after his selection in an unrelated training accident. And, um, but however, he, he did qualify for the program, he was brought in, so he did qualify as an astronaut, and he is recognized by NASA as the, as the first black astronaut. And it wasn't until 1978, 11 years later, that NASA actually chose their own black astronaut. Wow, that's really awesome. Well, cheers to looking forward to the future as we look back on our past. To learn more about CSNR, head to nro.gov and click on the History and Studies tab. You can also follow the National Reconnaissance Office on social media, and we will add our links and handles in the show notes. Thank you all so much for your time. I really appreciate you all guiding us through history. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The NRO provides reconnaissance support to the intelligence community and the Department of Defense, and is dedicated to going above and beyond to protect our nation and its citizens.